Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 160. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing two very different films, a ghost movie and a near future family drama. One's a movie, one's a TV series. The movie is from 1964 and it's a Japanese ghost anthology movie, Kwaidan. And then we move on to 2019 for Russell T Davies' new series, Years and Years, starring Emma Thompson. So sit back and get the contact details out of the way and we'll go from ghosts to demagogues. Martian Drive-In Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema for as little as a dollar a week. Uh, Just be aware when you're listening to the podcast, there may be some naughty words in it. So if there are kids around, you might want to listen to it later on. Okay, so how is everybody going? We're doing pretty okay here. The weather's getting warmer, then it's getting colder, then it's getting warmer again. Um, I've got some new toys to play with, which is always a bit of fun. I got two LED smart bulbs for the man cave, and I've put one in over the top and another in a lamp. And they're a lot of fun to play with. You can just mess around with them. You can change colours using a phone app. And um, apparently they use a lot less electricity than the old ones I was using. So I picked up a couple of those. They're a little bit expensive for light bulbs, but I'm sure I'm going to get some use out of them. They're going to look good in the background of YouTube videos, for instance. And I can kind of tweak how the background shadows look on the videos. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, um, technology is a lot of fun. So this time around, we're talking about two movies, Quidan from 1964, well, one movie and one TV series. I've got to be more specific there. Quite down from 1964 and Years and Years, a 2019 BBC TV series starring Emma Thompson, amongst other people. Rory Kinnear's in it as well. Um, Russell Tovey, a few other people. And, um, yes, there's six episodes and it's quite a roller coaster ride of future fear by the way we are using the richard rule this time around as usual which means i've got to start talking about the movies 15 minutes into the podcast okay so how is everybody going we're doing pretty okay here the weather's getting warmer and then it's getting colder then it's getting warmer again um, i've got some new toys to play with which is always a bit of fun i got two led smart bulbs for the man cave and i'll put one in over the top and another in a lamp And they're a lot of fun to play with. You can just mess around with them. You can change colours using a phone app. And um, apparently they use a lot less electricity than the old ones I was using. So I picked up a couple of those. They're a little bit expensive for light bulbs. But I'm sure I'm going to get some use out of them. They're going to look good in the background of YouTube videos, for instance. And I can kind of tweak how the background shadows look on the videos. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, um, technology is a lot of fun. So this time around, 
we're talking about two movies, Quidan from 1964. Well, one movie and one TV series. I've got to be more specific there. Quidan from 1964 and Years and Years, a 2019 BBC TV series starring Emma Thompson, amongst other people. Rory Kinnear's in it as well. Um, Russell Tovey, a few other people. And... Um, yes, there's six episodes and it's quite a roller coaster ride of future fear. By the way, I am using the Richard rule as usual, which means I've got to start talking about the actual movies at the 15 minute point of the podcast. So I've got plenty of time here. I'm recording this on a different um, YouTube window than the opening because I've got this weird glitch on the other track, which I'm not going to reproduce for you because it sounds really freaky. Well, actually, I will. I'll show you what it sounds like. So if I go to the other track and record my voice, it sounds much deeper, which is really frigging freaky. Anyway, I've got rid of that file, so all is well with the world. Um, Yeah, so all is not well with the world, really. <laughs> There's just so much stuff going on. And I've been watching it for the last couple of days through the filter of having seen years and years and kind of seeing the um, if this goes on stuff from that. So... Yeah, I really should avoid news media for the next couple of days until they detox from watching their TV series. But there's been a lot of things um, going on media-wise. Haven't seen the new Terminator movie yet. I really should get to see that as soon as I can. I've got a very busy three days on this weekend. Sally's got a market at Werribee Craft Market, so... Hear that thunder? We've got thunder and rain again, so uh, I'm going to kind of muscle through that. But anyway, Sally's got a market on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so we're going to be manning the store there while she sells some of her crafts, which means I've got to get all of my creative stuff done well before um, the weekend. So it's going to be a bit flat out for us. I'm not as quick as I should be with podcasts and YouTube videos. She's much better on her channel. By the way, Sal has a channel. Uh, which I'll link in the show notes here. And she's just so assiduous at getting her stuff organised uh, to the degree that she gives me a lot of shit about it. But that's okay that she does. I mean, it's part of the tussle of the relationship that if I don't do something I should, she'll tell me about it. If she doesn't do something she should, I'll tell her about it and she'll ignore it. The other thing that's kind of big that went on is I did have a talk with ABC Local Radio in Darwin and Beck McLaren, who is a lovely person and a good friend. And yeah, that was thunder again, by the way. Anyway, um, there's a segment they do on Wednesday nights, which is when I normally do the radio, uh, called Old New Borrow Blue, where you pick four songs, one old, one new, one borrowed, one blue, and talk about that for an hour with Beck. They get different people who are, to some degree, celebrities or well-known, and they get them to talk about their life. They get them to talk about their music. In my case, they got me to talk about movies and um, my past history, as an abuse survivor amongst other things so it was a very very hard interview and Beck didn't let me back away from some things that um yeah there were things I was shrugging off and kind of avoiding which were crucial to the whole point of the deal and so we talked for that um I'll post a link to that as well by the way on the show notes because it's me talking about how I became a movie buff it's me talking about how my childhood shaped me and my family background and how difficult some things were then there were some positives in there as well there's also four good songs i picked what i picked i picked um 
The first one was It Ain't the Meat, It's the Motion by Maria Maldauer, so I thought I'd start off lightly. Then I did um, Baby, I'm a Fool by Melody Gardot. I did The Big Hurt, sung by Scott Walker, one of my favourite singers. And lastly, I did um, I'll String Along With You, sung by Nat King Cole. They're all very personal to me for various reasons. And so I did all of that, and wow, that rain's starting to come on the windows pretty hard. And it was pretty heavy full on, and it, it got a very good response from the listeners. It got a good response from friends of mine who've heard it. And But for me, it, it did kind of um, put me on a down for a few days, which is a little bit odd. It was kind of emotionally draining to do it. But one of the things is that uh, survivors of abuse who talk about what they went through and experience help other people they tell other people who are going through monstrously difficult circumstances that they are not alone and that's the main reason i did it i'm going to pause just for a little bit because that rain coming against the window is quite distracting for me and miraculously it's the next day um i let that weather go away for a bit it's sunny and cold so yeah weird weather um so what have i been watching there's a few things i've been watching i should get my letter boxed up so i can let you know what exactly they are um i've been fairly fruitful when it comes to watching things uh, apart from the movies i'm going to talk about on the podcast but uh, apart from that let's see saw the giant claw from 1957 which has got a really bad monster but it's kind of okay apart from that um it's got um rex reason in it and mara corday and Morris Ankrum, and yeah, giant monster which has an antimatter shield around it and looks like a rather unfortunate turkey starts monstering the world and flying around and um, yeah, ripping up railway trains and trucks full of um, soldiers and um, hot rods full of teenagers. Yeah, it's no better or worse than it has to be. It was made by Sam Katzman for Columbia Pictures, I think it was. And Sam Katzman was always a cheap bastard, and uh, it shows. It very much shows. Sorry, I'm just opening a can of coffee there. Um, yeah, but Giant Claw is a bit of a nostalgia thing. It's on Tubi as well, which is kind of cool. They've got a lot of those 1950s B, C, D, and E rated um, science fiction films on Tubi.com. So I watched that. Watched another movie on Tubi as well, Devil Girl from Mars, an English science fiction movie from the early 1950s which is based on a stage play oddly enough i would pay cash money to see a stage play version of devil girl from mars i think that's something that all of us need in our lives at one stage or other but um nice bits of special effects um but it's kind of very talky being based on a play i suppose that's um part of it but uh yeah it's a kind of nice nostalgic i watch it every now and then i go yeah okay i I see what they're doing there and uh it's kind of yeah it's snack food almost as a movie and because i'm doing dolomite is my name for the radio this week i decided to backfill and watch some rudy ray moore movies and again they're on tubi tubi.com uh watch dolomite and i watched the sequel to dolomite the human tornado and i love these movies they're just kind of at the weird end of black exploitation and they were made just after black exploitation was a thing which is kind of odd uh 
They weren't made during the peak of black exploitation, which was the early 70s. They were mid-70s movies. And they all like to Rudy Ray Moore's nightclub act. That means there's some, a whole bunch of nightclub acts in various scenes in both Dolomite and the Human Tornado. Uh, there's some outrageous sex scenes which are played for fun rather than seriously. There's a lot of Rudy Ray Moore shtick in there. You either love or hate these kind of movies. It's one of those things where you can acquire the taste or you can just go, no, this is bad. I then watched a couple of Japanese films because I was on a Japanese film binge at the time. And I saw a couple of films from the early 1960s, not made by Toho Pictures, but made by their main rival, kind of slightly lower market um, opposition, Dae Films. And the first one was Yokai Monsters Spook Warfare. And the second one was Yokai Monsters Along with Ghosts. Now, Yokai are Japanese spirits. They're all different ones. There's that one legged umbrella man. There are um, Slit Face Woman. There's uh, all sorts of different Japanese legends. And they do pretty well with the special effects. They're practical effects. They're not done on the highest of budgets. But looking at the effects in both of these Yokai movies, I kind of compared them to what was going on in Europe and England and America. And the practical effects that were kind of manifesting weren't always great. There were some things that were just masks for the monsters. But there are some effects there that stand up pretty well uh, and really put across what they were trying to put across. They were incredibly inventive in the way they overcame the limitations of not only the movie-making technology of the time, but their budgets and what was available to them. And they're kind of cute and horrible at the same time. There's some incredible nastiness there. There's an evil demon in the first one, which came out of an Assyrian tomb, and uh, who, who then came to Japan, and the Japanese monsters have to defend Japan. There's some um, nice period stuff in there as well, where they... It's not set in modern times, it's set in kind of ill-defined 17th, 18th century Japan. So there are samurai, there are magistrates, there are, um, you know, katanas and uh, other swords and things like that. So, yeah, they're kind of a bit fun to watch. They're a little hard to find, but if you look around hard enough, you'll find them. And because I'm a big fan of yokai, I like the Japanese legends, which is what led me on to watching Kwaidan. Um, I'd recommend them. So they're both good. I'll give you the titles again. Yokai Monsters Spook Warfare and Yokai Monsters Along With Ghosts. Now, it's heading up to the 15-minute mark, so I really should start talking about the movies. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Kwaidan. の吹き渡る風のように煌めく雪の白さのように歌いを知らぬ愛を女は求めた<笑><笑> 
着せる魂たちを目覚めさせ炎と水の世界に響く。に突然現れた見知らぬ他人の微笑みは故知らぬ不安に一人の武士を駆り立てる数々の伝説の中に脈々と生き続けた日本人の人真実はこの混沌の現代へのプロテストとしてここによみがえる。とは人の心の中にあるのか人の心の外にあるのか人間存在の不条理をえぐり切腹に続いて小林正樹が全世界に激しく問いかける。Yeah, I'm not going to play all of that, but、uh, the, that gives you some of the mood of Quiet Down, which is a really interesting set of four stories made in 1964 by Toho Films. Based on the translations of Japanese folktales done by an American、uh, nipponologist of the early 20th century and late 19th century, a guy called Lafcadio Hearn. Kwaidan literally means ghost stories, and the director of the film was a guy called Masaki Kobayashi, and he did political dramas and socially minded period pieces according to the Criterion collection I've got here. And then suddenly he came out with this. And it's、uh, Roger Ebert said that it's one of the most beautiful movies he's ever seen. And I will go along with that. Visually, this movie is mind blowing, particularly for 1964. It's beautifully done. There are some enormous indoor sets which evoke the mood and the、um, period and the whole mise en scene. And best of all, and this is something I've never seen done anywhere near like this in a movie, and I've seen a few of them, as you know. 
the dioramas at the back, the the kind of sky and the landscape at the the sky at the back behind the sets is done in a very abstract way. In one of the stories, the sky and the clouds are full of human eyes. In others, they are beautifully evoked, stylized sunsets. It's just an incredibly beautiful film. And kind of interesting that they put such intense and immense beauty into a horror story, or four horror stories. And I really like that. Um, The last one is kind of a bit of fun. There's a slight joke in there which came unexpected to me, which I kind of like. I like movies that surprise me, and this one very much did in a number of ways. But there is a joke in the fourth one, which is kind of cool. Now, I'll go through the four stories and just give you a little bit of an impression. I'm not going to do spoilers on them because that would be a horrible thing to do to anybody. But uh, the first one's called The Black Hair, and it comes from uh, Lafcadio O'Hearn. Uh, collection called Shadowings, as well as his main book, which was Stories and Studies of Strange Things. It's about a poor swordsman who divorces his wife, who is a weaver, uh, and leaves Kyoto to marry a woman of wealthy family to get greater status. He goes to another city, I think Edo, which is Tokyo before it was called Tokyo. Um, He settles in and he is uh, indentured to um, a master. He's a um, samurai, so he's obviously got a master. He's not a ronin. And um, he lives there with his second wife, but he's unhappy. Um, His wife's kind of callow and selfish, and uh, he is very unhappy in that marriage. So when his contract is up with his master... He leaves his wife and decides to go back to Kyoto and reconcile with his wife. He gets back there and nothing seems to have changed. Everything's exactly as it was when he left, including his wife. Now, I'm not going to go any further than that because these stories, even though the ending of them may be, to some people's minds, a little predictable, there is a wonderful reveal and unwinding of what actually is occurring in each of these stories and in the black hair it really is beautifully done we get the sense of his house in Kyoto when he's there and first leaves his uh, first wife and there is a genuinely heartbreaking um, feel to that part of the movie they've got a little kind of um, well that's a spring that's shoot um putting water into a, a bathing area and there's an area where his wife does a weaving it's all tatami mats and um, rice paper screens that kind of a, a Japanese household and yeah it's um it's a very sad story in a lot of ways and uh, just rethinking about it after having seen it I love the fact that we get invested in all of the characters and all through the movie, the acting is really on point. We've got Michio Aratama playing the first wife and Rentaro Mikuni as the husband. Uh, second wife is played by Masaka Watanabe. And all of them are really on point. There's, there's the, the acting's not stylized, even though the makeup and the hair and you've got that little kind of mesh where the wigs join up that you can see. It really does give us a sense of this guy regretting the choices he makes in his life as a young man 
and then as a somewhat older man trying to go back and change his life but it doesn't end up the way he wants it to because of course this is a ghost story and the lovely thing about it is that things change i mean the household changes i'm trying very hard not to do spoils in this but there's things aren't as he sees them let's just put it that way and uh we see it as he sees it and then we see things how they really are and the production designer and the set design and the set decorating to take us from a to b and from to take us from one place to another is extraordinarily well done uh there's a craft and an art here that is next level for the time it feels because it's all all the whole movie pretty much is on done on sound stages at times it can feel a little like a stage production but there's an immersiveness to the way that the production design is done and the way the set design is done and the costumes and and the incredible unmistakable and mind-boggling dioramas all throughout this movie are incredible and give us the they evoke what we the movie wants us to feel and the other thing the dioramas do which is um really useful in the context of this film is they give us a view of the world beyond the world that supernatural world that is innate to all of these stories the dioramas are a reflection of that they're not a reflection of meteorological phenomena or geography or anything like that they evoked that second world for us and i love that i love the fact that they were bold enough to do that and to put it into the film and in each of the four different stories they are crucially important to the narrative and crucially important to film as a whole i've never seen a movie like quietan it really does take me to a different place than any other movie i've ever seen and that's kind of mind-boggling and wonderful the second story which comes hot on the heels of the first one is called the woman of the snow now i've either read or heard about this story before it's the middle of winter in rural japan and two woodcutters named minokichi and mosaku uh, take refuge in a fisherman's hut during a snowstorm they've, they've been out cutting wood they get caught in a blizzard and there's a fisherman's hut beside a little ferry um, across a river and they take shelter there now, Masaku, the older guy, is killed by a Yukiona. A Yukiona is a kind of snow vampire, a female snow vampire, who's very beautiful, pale blue, and deadly. But Minokichi is, gets spared because he's young and he hasn't had life experience and she spares his life. She warns him to never mention what happened or that she exists to anybody or she will kill him. So Minokichi returns to work and he meets a young woman who looks a little bit like the ghost that he saw, the, the snow vampire Yukiona. She tells him she's on her way to Edo, the capital, as she lost her family and has relatives there who can get her a job as a lady-in-waiting. Uh, Minokichi offers to take her home for a meal and someplace to sleep and to meet his mother. His mother likes her and convinces her to stay. 
and eventually she, um, she and Minokichi fall in love and marry and have three children, and they live happily for 10 years. Um, the mother, unfortunately, dies, and the wife is very well regarded in the village. And then one day, during a snowstorm, just before New Year's, Minokichi tells her about the Yukiona. That's as far as I'm going on that story. It's not unpredictable what occurs, but the movie gives us such an evocation of the seasons, for a start. There's the winter, which you've got to remember this is all done on a soundstage. So there's snow drifts and there's a little river and there's a boat and there's little huts and there's um, Minokichi's house and the village where the women go down near the water to do their washing, and there's a water wheel near that. There's the summertime, there's the springtime when he first meets his wife, and just, and yeah, they're walking along paths with fields of grass before and behind them, and yeah, it just gives a stylized evocation of the seasons. And the scenes with the Yukiona are genuinely confronting, and they're not quite terrifying, but they are otherworldly to an extreme extent. And the stylization of the sets and the locations that are on the soundstage work in favour of the movie. They don't take us out of the story, they take us into the story. And that's really... One of the things that amazes me about this film where I know exactly that it's a soundstage. There, there's no way of not knowing it's a soundstage all through this movie. But that artificiality works in our favour and that is just mind-blowing to me. The art that these people... Um, I shouldn't mention the director, Masaki Kobayashi, and his... Let's see if I can find who production designed this. Um, it was released by Toho, but cinematography is by Yoshio uh, Miyajima. And, yeah, the, this, like I said, this movie is incredibly evocative. And then they escalate again with the third story, which is Hoichi the Earless, which is an adaptation of um, another one of um, Hearn's Kwaidan stories. This story starts with a stylized battle of... Um, a, a real-life battle that happened in Japanese history, and it's called the Battle of Dan-non-Ura, which happened in 1185 AD on the 25th of April, which happens to be Anzac Day. Um, it was a sea battle uh, as a part of the um, Genpei War. Uh, let me just have a look here. There was the fleet of the Minamoto clan, the Genji, led by Minamoto no Yoshitsune, defeated the fleet of the Taira clan, there was a riptide which gave the advantage to the Tyra clan in the morning, but turned to a disadvantage in the afternoon. The young emperor Antoku perished with the Tyra nobles. And it's a very famous battle. And there was a song, The Tale of the Haiki, which was um, written about it. It's an epic account compiled prior to 1330 AD of the struggle between the Taira clan and the Minamoto clan for control of Japan at the end of the 12th century in the Genpei War. And 
Hoichi the, is a blind musician who is a specialist in singing the tales of the haiki, particularly about the Battle of Dananora. He plays a musical instrument called a biwa, and he is he lives in a temple. He's may take vows in the temple, um, and he is looked after by the priests of the temple. Each night he starts disappearing and reappearing the next morning and he sleeps all through the day. And his friends and the priests are concerned about him. So one night his friends follow him and discover he's been going to a graveyard and reciting the tales of Haiki to the dead emperor's court who are all ghosts. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of things here, so I'll pause there. At the start we see a stylized evocation of what happens during the Battle of Danaura. There are little, um, there's supposed to be a great sea battle, but what we get is a whole bunch of stylized smaller boats against a very clear backdrop of a diorama. And we get the story of how the emperor, who was a, almost a baby, a very young child, and his court commits suicide rather than being captured, tortured, and killed by the enemy. They, um, and we see the whole sea battle done as a stylized kind of thing. It's hard to talk about this without showing you. It's an incredibly visual thing. But we get the sea battle and we get the results of the sea battle and the unfortunate um, deaths of the um, Genji side of things. And then we get into the story of Hoichi. So Hoichi is telling this story of the whole um, saga, the tale of the Haiki, to this court. And he is telling them the Battle of Danaura, where they all died, as his friends come upon and discover he's been going to the graveyard. Now, his friends are really concerned for his safety. They like Hoichi. He's an incredible artist. So a priest and his acolyte write the text of the Buddhist Heart Sutra, all over his body to make him invisible to the ghosts. And they instruct him to go outside and sit still as if in meditation. They tell him, whatever happens, don't react and don't move. But they make a mistake. Now again, I'm not going to take that one any further. It's incredible. The, um, the way they move from this graveyard to the court of the emperor and back again and there are really interesting little things like little flaming balls of fire on strings floating around like will-o'-the-wisps there are banners for the court which hang seemingly suspended on nothing above the court they're obviously on thin bits of wire but from our viewpoint there are these floating banners and there are these balls of fire skirting around like random spirits it's an incredible piece of work um there's just such a richness to it and the story draws you in that artificiality is a magnet for your attention because you're going okay what are they doing oh they're doing that for that that really works yeah that kind of thing where the more you the closer you watch choir done the more you get from it. It kind of encourages close focus. 
in the best possible way. And I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. I've got the ability to hyper-focus. Part of my PTSD is that I can hyper-focus and take everything else away from me. Someone could be talking at me and I won't hear them because I'm hyper-focused on the screen. It's really a useful skill for a movie buff. And this movie really engages that in a wonderful way. And Hawichi the Earless is really, it's hard to say which one's the best, but this is one of the top four of the four stories. Um, then we get the next one called In a Cup of Tea. Um, a writer starts talking about, relates a tale that he hasn't completed, and he hasn't completed it for a very specific reason. He talks about an attendant to um, a feudal lord, a guy called Sakino. Um, when his lord is on his way to make a New Year's visit, he halts his train at a tea house, and when the party's resting there, Sekinai gets a cup of tea and sees the face of a strange man in that cup of tea. But he drinks the cup of tea. Later on, while he's guarding his lord, the man whose face appeared in the cup of tea reappears and calls himself Hene Shikubu. Sekinai tells the other attendants, and they laugh at him because obviously the guy's not there, they've got guards everywhere there's no way anybody can get past them and then second eye is visited by three ghostly attendants of shikibu and he duels them and he nearly gets defeated and then the tale ends but there is something after that which i'm not going to spoil at all because it's really cool and in a way it kind of reminds me of Black, for some reason, Quiet Down reminds me of um, Black Sabbath, the Mario Bava film. Again, it's a bunch of different stories told together, and it's very stylized, and it evokes a mood wonderfully. And Quiet Down is just such a unique experience for me as a film goer and as a watcher of films. I mean, I get awed constantly that doesn't matter how many movies I've seen, there's always something else, something from 60 years ago nearly, which I haven't seen before and which blows my mind. That's the loveliest thing about being a film buff is that doesn't matter how much you watch or how many films you see, there are always more. It's like digging ditches and finding gold nuggets everywhere. It doesn't matter how long a ditch you dig or how deep a ditch you dig, there are always more gold nuggets, and we always manage to find them when we least expect them. Quiet End is arguably the best movie I saw for the first time this year. It really has had that profound impact on me, and I deeply love it. If you haven't seen it before, you should, and if you have seen it before, you should see it again. And I don't know how much of my reaction to this film is part of the fact that I love Japan and I want to go back there, even though we only went in April. I want to go back there because there is an infinite amount of things to see in Japan and their history is everywhere. You can be in the middle of the biggest city, the biggest high-rise buildings with smart screens everywhere and Wi-Fi and enormous advertising hoardings and then you'll walk around a corner and there's a tiny little shrine there. Their history is everywhere in Japan. And a movie like Kwaidan reminds us of why. It tells us that the legends and the myths and the morality tales of that culture 
are everywhere. So it's time for a break now. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about a near future science fiction series of six very intense episodes directed, uh, written by Russell Russell T. Davies, the guy who worked on Doctor Who for a very long time and starring Emma Thompson, Rory Kinnear and Russell Tovey. And it is years and years. I'll play you the trailer. Look at the state we are in. God knows we need to shake things up. So I propose that in order to vote, every British citizen must take an IQ test. God, what did she just say? Are you saying that some people are too stupid to vote? I've got you listening now, haven't I? Things were okay a few years ago. Surprise! Now, I don't know what to worry about first. I'm only just beginning. What's it gonna be like for you? We used to think the news was boring. <laughs> it turns out we were born in a pause. I love it. The whole system's in pieces. So nice to have you back. <laughs> you met my sister once. Was I nice? What sort of world are we in? Hello, Mummy. We will change forever. I thought so. Don't you dare. It's a terrible, terrible world. But I want to see every second of it. This country has never been more magnificent. I look ahead and see glory. Are you with me? You don't mind, do you? No. No. Seventy-two years ago, a gay Englishman wrote a play and had it produced, a two-act play. It was written in 1946, but it was produced in the Lyric Theatre in London in 1947. And it was called Peace in Our Time. It was written by Noel Coward. And it's an alternate universe play about Germany winning the Battle of Britain and successfully invading and occupying the United Kingdom. And it was inspired by Noel Coward's knowledge of the French resistance under the Nazis in the 1940s. It hasn't been known very much since then, but it very much has the same feel as Russell T. Davies' series, Years and Years. The series looks at the near future up till about a dozen years from now in England through the lens of the Lyons family. Now, you've got to think that that's a little bit of a deliberate choice of name too, the British Lion and Lion. So that kind of works. Now, the family's kind of diverse. Then they live under the shadow of a character called Vivian Rook, played by Emma Thompson, who starts out as one of those political jokes who says outrageous things. She's a businesswoman. She's controversial. She says in a very early interview in the series that she doesn't give a fuck about Syria or Israel or Palestine or any of that. And because she drops an F-bomb on TV, she starts a political party called the Four Star Party, the four stars being the censorship of the word fuck. So they're living under the shadow of her increasing political power until eventually she rises to being Prime Minister of the UK. Now, the family is very diverse. We've got Rory Kinnear playing Stephen Lyons, who starts out as a financial advisor living in London, 
with his wife Celeste, played by Tania Miller. Um, Celeste is a woman of colour, and their two daughters, Bethany and Ruby, are biracial. Um, we also have Russell Tovey playing Daniel Lyons, who's a housing officer based in Manchester, and he is gay. He, at one stage, marries a guy called Ralph. He's a primary school teacher. Uh, but eventually they part as he meets. He's, he's a housing officer for the council, and he's trying to get accommodation for refugees. And he meets a Ukrainian refugee, called um, Victor and they fall in love and that causes some ructions as Britain becomes more isolated as each of the nations in Europe and the US there's not much said about Australia but as the nations become more insular um, insular the problems of a refugee as he is sent back to the Ukraine and slowly tries to make his way back to England there are some repercussions of that in the series as well. We've also got Jessica Hines playing Edith, who's a political activist. Um, Jessica Hines, you might remember from being in Spaced with Simon Pegg back around the turn of the century. And she's a political activist um, who comes back to England for very specific reasons later on and becomes a very crucial character in the narrative. Then we have Ruth Madley playing Rosie Lyons, um, who's the youngest of the siblings, and she has spina bifida. She is in a wheelchair, but she um, she's a single mother. She's got two children by two different men. And she at the start of it, she works in the school cafeteria organising. She's basically um, management for the cafeteria. Then we have Anne Reed playing Muriel, who's the grandmother of all of those siblings and is the matriarch of the family. And she's really an interesting character because... We see her at her worst and at her best as the narrative continues. And she lives into her 90s. She gets macular degeneration, but stem cell treatments make that treatable. And the other interesting character in the family is um, Bethany, played by Lydia West, who's Stephen and Celeste's older daughter, who comes out to her parents in the first episode as trans. Now, she's not transsexual. She's transhuman. She wants to get rid of her flesh and be uploaded into the cloud. And that causes some immense changes in her life, some of which are good and some of which are nightmarish. Now, as I said, there are six episodes. The first one in, starts in 2019. Uh, second one starts in 2025. Then we go to 2026, 2027, 2028, 2029 and 2034 in the last episode. Now, the problem it starts out is um, there's an island that the Chinese government has created in some disputed waters called Hongsha Dao. And just as the first episode's about to end, Donald Trump organises a nuclear attack on the island of Hongsha Dao. It is part of a political group who are on the coast of Vietnam near the island of Hongsha Dao. Hong Shadao, sorry. And she sees the nuclear explosion. She's on actually Skyping with her family at the time the blast happens. And she and her activist friends take a ship out to the island and get drone footage of the destruction and the death of 22,000 civilians living on that island. And as a part of that, she's under the cloud of the fallout. 
and because of the radiation she um, has inflicted on her, has a lifespan of only 20 more years at the most, if she's lucky. So that's how the first um, episode ends, with America nuclear nuclear offshore island of China's. And then we cut to a year in the future and things have settled down. Everything's gone back weirdly normal. Uh, China's backed down on its ambitions to um, make offshore islands. America's got nuttier. And things start to kind of settle down, but then they don't. Because America, being Fortress America at this stage, is... Um, has an economic collapse, and one of the major investment banks there dies. And Stephen, who is um, an investment advisor, because they've just he and his wife Celeste have just sold their house, the money's in his bank account when the bank collapses, and he becomes known as the investment advisor who lost over a million pounds. And so he can't get a job in his chosen industry, and ends up being a bicycle courier because he can't get a job doing anything else. He starts working in the gig economy and ends up with a dozen different gigs to earn money to keep his family around. Um, He starts an affair with one of the fellow bike couriers, a woman, and he and Celeste break up. Meanwhile, their daughter, who is transhuman, starts looking at ways of manifesting her transhumanity, and that then leads down a dark path, but ultimately she's negotiates her way through that um, This again this is a bit like Quiet and I c- there are so many spoilers in here I don't want to do um, then there's a relationship between Daniel and Victor which is um, one of the cute romantic relationships in there which is held apart by politics in a reasonable world they would get married after he divorces his quite stupid ex-husband and that would be it But because of the politics of things and the politics of being a refugee, um, Victor and Daniel go on a perilous journey to get Victor into the UK. And meanwhile, while all this is going on and all the family eruptions are going on, and Stephen and his family have to move back to Manchester to live in his mother's house, which is quite a large old house, um, Vivian Rook is in the ascendancy and things start to change in the UK. Housing estates where there are high crime rates start getting fences around them and having curfews, and eventually they become like ghettos in Poland during the Nazi regime. They start getting those kind of restrictions on them. And secretly, Vivian Rook starts a project called Erstwhile, which is essentially concentration camps and death camps designed to put undesirables and refugees in, and they dot them around the landscape as global warming starts and Britain is inundated with floods. They get 60 days of rain and there are immense problems with infrastructure and housing and coastal areas being inundated. So they institute what they call a bedroom law where if you've got a spare bedroom, you have to let a kind of climate refugee from the coast live there. So people who have houses are mandatorily have imposed on them these displaced people. Um, There are incredible restrictions that slowly tighten on the UK. 
the BBC loses its charter and closes down, so there's no independent media there anymore. There are protests, and meanwhile, Edith starts investigating the erstwhiles and seeing what's going on there. And while Victor and Daniel try to get Victor into the UK, which ends quite horribly. So we get all of that happening, and the tension ramps up and ramps up, and it's quite a scary and scarily plausible world that we're getting years and years, which really does make us wonder. And then something happens in the last episode. And the matriarch of the Lyons family has this wonderful, evocative speech, which I'm not going to spoil because you've had five episodes of increasing tension and tragedy and immense life changes for the whole world in so many ways. And then this old woman who's, the character's in her 90s, and Anne Reed is fantastic in this. She's really an incredibly gifted actor tells it like it is and there's a beautiful speech there which is in context on point and it's not talking to the lions family who are gathered around the table for a family gathering it's to the audience it's didactic as fuck and it's there to tell us what's wrong and that we're the problem and then things start to happen and the technologies that are used to repress and kill and stunt and diminish people start turning. There's a kind of tipping point, as there are many tipping points. There's the climate tipping point. There's a political tipping point in this. There's the Deng Xiaodao explosion. There are all sorts of different tipping points in this. And then there's another tipping point, which is guardedly optimistic. And the technologies that are made available start working against the secrecy of this fascist government in the UK. And one of the eeriest things, too, is there's a scene between Stephen, who gets a job with an old school friend who is contracting for the erstwhile sites to manage the infrastructure there, and accidentally meets Vivian Rook in a side room at a big meeting. And we find out that she's not actually in charge, but there are people who are above her in the hierarchy. And she's not just this kind of Donald Trump character, but there are grey eminences behind her. And this is only lightly um, kind of evoked, but it gives us a real sense of who controls this particular world, and it's scary as fuck. Now, Emma Thompson is fantastic in this. She's been fantastic in pretty much everything she's done for a very long time now. But in this one, she gives us a kind of cross between Trump and Margaret Thatcher and Pauline Hanson here in Australia. Uh, She really does give us a scarily plausible demagogue who is unsuccessful at first and is a bit of a political joke at first. But she learns from her mistakes and she learns from her failures and becomes an overwhelming tsunami of influence, which leads to the worst excesses of this future world. Now, the series is only just starting here in Australia, but I've managed to see all six episodes. And 
Yeah, um, good science fiction doesn't talk to the future, it talks to the times we live in. And years and years does that. I don't think it's entirely perfect. I think there are a few little bits where it could be tightened up, but there are also the bits at the start of each episode where we get that sense of the tsunami of history and the tsunami of change that comes to these people. And we get to like them. Stephen is probably the the most ambiguous character of the family. Um, We get Daniel, who is um, romantic and determined and and finds his best self in some ways. Um, We get Rosie, who's influenced by Vivian Rook, the demagogue, at the start, but then becomes her best self. And we get um, Celeste, who we think is in a bad situation with the matriarch of the family, but then something happens. There are a couple of bits where, and this is beautifully evoked, where people underestimate, including the audience, underestimate the senior member of the family, Muriel. And there are times when she's wrong and she's cringeworthily wrong. But then when the crunch comes, we see this immensely wise older woman and I like that. I like the fact that even if she's kind of wrong about certain things and has trouble getting her head around technology, eventually she does. Eventually she kind of comes to accommodation with the Siri and Alexa-like um, ubiquitous computing that they have. She uses it incredibly well at a certain stage and she really does hold the family together and having the house, she gives them a point at which, in a sense, it's like a family social safety net. There's a point beyond which the family can't fall because she's there and she has the home and they can go there if they need to. And that's kind of nice. It's good to see people just not playing to the cliches of older people and cliches of women and cliches of people going through um, changes like transhumanism and one of the minor characters is also uh, gender ambiguous which is kind of nice it's a, a child but they let the child be themselves and that's kind of the first time I've really seen that in such a comfortable way in fiction and in a, a fictional narrative on television and then there's a lot between Daniel and Victor which is um, given immense barriers and yet it becomes a crucial part of the family in a way and it helps the family expand beyond the people who are genetically related and I think that's one of the lovely evocations that this series does is it gives us the knowledge that family isn't just about the people with whom you're blood related it's about people who come into your family and become a part of it and become important to it and how inclusivity is an important force in making the world a better place so you should see this you should see this series because it really is good it really does give us something to think about something to very much be scared of and it's worth spending your time on um now just before we go I've actually got some feedback. I haven't had feedback since Jesus was playing Cowboys. Um, Gary Letterjohn, who's been a great supporter, supporter, sorry, 
of the podcast for years, and I really appreciate that. So Gary sent me an email saying, hi, Terry. So I listened to the Detective D episode. Sounded interesting. Luckily, all three Detective D films are easily obtainable in Germany. And in brackets, he says, video buster. So I put all of them on my list. Of course, they're dubbed in German. No idea how long it will be until I actually get them. Looking at IMDb, it seems that the Detective D films fare very poorly in the USA, but make scads of money in other markets. I guess your average American, I'm one myself, can't get into this kind of movie. Keep up the good podcasting, Gary. Thank you very much, Gary. Um, And thanks for your support over the years too, mate. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think you've got to get your head around a different way of thinking when you're looking at Chinese cinema. And I've been trying to do that in a few episodes here and explain that there is a different cultural viewpoint there. There are things with Chinese official culture with which I have an enormous problem, but I understand the underlying culture better than I have in the past, and I, I keep learning. In the same way, movies like Quietan teach me about Japanese culture, and of course going to places does that as well. Uh, the Detective D movies are great action-adventure films, and they really are cool uh, i don't understand why somebody wouldn't be open to that but um yeah people view cinema in different ways some people never venture out of their comfort zones but i always find that when i get out of my comfort zone with movies i'm never disappointed it's when i stay in the comfort zone that i get kind of complacent and kind of think that all movies are the same and then I step out of that comfort zone. And sometimes I'm forced out of the comfort zone too. When I do the radio with Rebecca McLaren, Rebecca will suggest a movie to me that I would never have thought of doing for the radio. And then suddenly I'm in a new place. I go, okay, that was good. And um, yeah, the recommendations from other people are an incredible gift. And I, I've got so many of them in the past. Quiet Down was recommended to me decades ago and I didn't see it until recently. But yeah, um, it's. I think that's one of the great things that we should be doing as much as possible, and that is sharing wonderful things with each other. It often doesn't cost us anything. It, it binds people together, and it enriches our culture. And sometimes, even when you're not feeling it, you should really just step out of that comfort zone and try something new. And for me the Detective D movies, that, and that's one of the lucky things that we have here, is that we've got things like SBS On Demand, which is the streaming service our um, government pays for. Well, actually, our people pay for. The government just is the funnel through which the money flows. But our taxes pay for um, SBS and the ABC, and that then gives us access to immense amounts of diverse entertainment. So I can go onto my Xbox, for instance, and open up SBS On Demand. It's geo-blocked, unfortunately. And I can see a whole bunch of French films and Italian films and German films and Bosnian films and Serbian films. Not the Serbian film, but literally at my fingertips. I've got incredible amounts of stuff that I wouldn't have picked up on otherwise. And I'm... Never, no, I don't never don't feel lucky about that. The fact that we live in a time where we've got access to this stuff. I remember days when I had to get, first off, I had to get a multi-zone VHS player 
to be able to play American movies. And then I had to get a multi-zone DVD and Blu-ray player to watch certain movies. I still do that to a certain extent. Um, There were times when I traveled 60 kilometers to see a movie on public transport, and it took me two hours on a a train and a bus, actually a couple of trains and a bus. Uh, And so we're now much more fortunate in that, and we've got to be given a really good reason to get out of the house. But, um, yeah, uh, thanks for the feedback, Gary. I wandered off a little bit there. But thank you very much for the feedback, mate. And uh, let me know what you think of the Detective D movies. I think that they're a lot of fun. And, again, the more we understand other cultures, the less we hate. And on that little Pollyanna note, I'm going to leave you there. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you again to all the Patreon supporters and people like Gary who contribute as well. Um, Again, I still haven't got Rich Chamberlain on the credits. And Rich is great and has supported the podcast for a very long time. And I want to thank him separately this time around, but I'm putting it on my list of important things to do, like going to the doctors tomorrow to get Rich onto the credits. So, again, thank you for listening. Keep watching the skies. Keep watching good movies, bad movies, all sorts of movies until the next time we have a chat. And I'm going to leave you with the credits, and then I'm going to put some music afterwards because I always put a music track afterwards as a post-credits sequence. So thanks again, and thank you to the Patreon supporters and everybody else who supports the podcast in every way. I'll catch you guys very soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine our scientific advisor, Julia our casting director, Chris our camera operator, Christopher our gaffer, Miss Jane our wardrobe mistress, Tansy our foley artist, Alyssa our location scout, Mark our second unit director, Paul our special makeup effects director, Tammy the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H, our set photographer. Mark D, our extra. And David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. I don't know. I feel a little guilty. So I've noticed. You could have a great career. Hmm? And you should. Only one thing stops you, dear. Too much money. You're too good. If you want a future, darling, why don't you get a past? Cause that fatal moment's coming.
About you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous and misbehave. <clears throat> When Adam won his hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. are clear so if you want to go walking dear it's delightful it's delicious it's del lovely i understand the reason why you're sentimental cause so am i are we it's delightful it's delicious it's del lovely yourself go so please be sweet my chickadee and when i kiss you just say to me it's delightful mm -hmm. it's delicious it's delectable it's delirious it's the lemon it's the limit it's the looks it's, it's the lovely Slightly fried. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's de I can't swim. Oh, 
to the pop of champagne. Up we hop in our plush little plane to the bright light from the darkness cozily falls. Niagara Falls. All swell, my love, our day's complete. And what a beautiful bridal suite. It's dreamy. It's derousy. It's the reverie. It's derousy. It's the regal. It's the royal. It's the rich. It's, it's the lovely. Madam, please, this is my room. Oh, tell it to the Marines. The Marines? I love your peaches. You'll have to excuse me. I was just doing the books. Are you good at figures, dear? Kindly tell me if so. Yes, I'm good at figures, dear. But in the morning, no. Do double entry, dear. Kindly tell me if so. I do double entry, dear. But in the morning, no, no. Yes, yes. No, no. Yes, yes. No, 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 no. We're on the crest. We have no cares. We're just a couple of honey bears. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's lovely. One night at my window, I see an absurd bird with a bundle hung on his nose. Get baby clothes. These eyes of mine are filled with joy. When nurse appears and cries, it's a boy. He's a poly. He's appealing. He's a polywag. He's a paragon. He's a Popeye. He's a panic. He's a pimp. It's He's getting a... late. And while I wait, my poor heart aches on. Why keep the brakes on? Let's misbehave. I feel quite sure but I'm more would be attractive while we're still active. Let's misbehave. You know my heart is true when you say you for me can. Somebody sure to tell. Love affairs. And even camels. Mm -hmm. 